70 record closing highs so far for the day. Blasting through a ceiling. In a record-setting IPO. Investors who have been riding the wave. When the stock market is booming, we're made to believe the economy is booming. As the stock market goes, so goes the wealth and the health and economy. So what exactly is the stock market measuring? Good evening, good evening, good evening, good evening once again, 98.4 Capital FM, and welcome to the Financial Forecast, where you can access accurate and timely global market outlook on demand, alongside Chief Economist Ken Gishinga and myself, Danny Muni. And to listen to us online, www.radio.capitalfm.co.ke forward slash listen live, or download the iCapital FM radio app on any of your mobile devices. If you have voice um uh, voice command devices you can also tell them or ask them to play for you capital fm kenya bill first to know what's happening on the global markets every monday morning bright and early by visiting www.mentoria.co.ke to subscribe and you can also reach us if you want to have any input on what we discussed today on whatsapp 0701984984 or you can tweet us at capital fm kenya hashtag financial focused Welcome, Ken. Thanks, Danny. It's a lovely Tuesday evening. A fanciful Tuesday. Indeed, <laughs> and uh, quite uh, a bit happening um, in the global markets. How has been your weekend? Oh, it's been a relaxed weekend uh, and a good start to the week. Mm. And I think this is going to be a very loaded week in terms of uh, data that's coming out. So I think we should get uh, richer insights on really what to expect in our financial forecast in the next one hour yes and let's jump in so the equities how is everything looking well i think the big story right now j- just came out one hour ago um from the imf really them releasing their latest outlook uh they have um, upgraded uh, global growth to three percent if you remember the last uh, report in april it was at uh, 2.8 percent so they're saying slightly we might see um the u.s might avoid that recession they might hit those low inflation numbers without necessarily going into a recession. I think that's a lifting uh, sentiment. Obviously, the big data point this week is what the Fed will do. I think at this point, there is a consensus that the Fed will raise interest rate by about 25 basis points, which means uh, for a lot of people, it's a lot of people believe this is the end of the tightening cycle. After all this uh, tightening, there will be no further uh, tightening and uh, I think a lot of people are seeing positively in that and I think that is lifting most of the equities markets um, together with the big earnings the tech companies are coming today energy stocks so the tech companies are seeing the the alphabets the Microsofts and uh, the energy stocks are also doing quite well if you look at what's happening on the crude prices so I think it's it's pretty positive sentiment among this Tuesday and this is what actually Kristalina Georgieva had to say. I believe the, we are at the point when um, central banks are looking at data and uh, uh, likely for some of them to pulse. But let me be very clear, until it is irreversibly a process of bringing inflation to target, central banks cannot let go. She's <laughs> those are very strong s- sentiments, very cautious, very I think, strong, and very strong. I think they are realizing that uh, the tight financing conditions 
uh, by central banks increasing interest rates is also having an impact on just businesses and growth. And I think they want to reassure that maybe we are coming to an end of this, but at the end of the day, they have to reinstate their mandate. They have to say their mandate at the end of the day is price stability, inflation needs to go where it is. Now, if you look at the inflation numbers uh, globally, it's down to 6.6%. Last year it was about 8.7%. That's what you call headline inflation. Core inflation um, still is moving a bit slower. So it tells you that still we are moving in the right direction uh, price-wise, but uh, not all central banks are convinced. So the Fed might be the first one to put a pause. But when you look at Europe, there's still quite a, a bit of a distance from where they'd like to be. So I think it's still going to be a bit more, still some pain ahead, uh, some pain before the gain, you'd say. And before we even go to Europe, what's actually stuck in the embers of improvement within the U.S.? Uh, well, I mean, there's quite a bit of positive and uh, negative stuff. Um, so the positive stuff, as you said, is we are and we are we are coming closer towards the uh, the rate hike. The tightening cycle is coming to an end, but there are some negative things. I mean, the tight financing conditions have been very difficult for Americans. Um, household savings have been depleted. Um, China, which America really depends on in terms of trade, has not been growing as fast as they had expected. So all these things are affecting American growth. But if you go sector by sector, I mean, the tech sector still doing very well. Energy sector still doing. If you look at companies like um, Halliburton, really, really doing um, quite, quite, quite well. So I, I would say uh, Bidenomics has worked in the sense that they've been able to contain inflation without necessarily going into a recession. Unemployment, I think it's at the lowest it's been, 3.6% in a long time. So I think, and that's I think the part that Christianova was saying in that in that clip later on, that they have found a narrow path to avoid that recession. I think markets are taking it positively. When people have jobs, it means they'll spend. And that's why you think the stock markets um, are, are quite positive. Looking at Europe, in fact, the IMF says that the, out of the G7, only Germany is likely to be facing a recession. Is it that Germany just reacted too late in terms of hiking their rates while all other European nations were doing, or well, 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 the other European nations were doing their tightening just in time for for averting a disaster. Well, I mean, Germany is the powerhouse of Europe, so naturally, you are expecting if the ECB was raising interest rates, uh, the people who would be affected the most would be the Germans because that is really the heart um, of commerce. So high interest rates would disproportionately. Germany, but also there's also the Chinese connection where a lot of the Chinese products, the German, the Mercedes Benzes, all these are exported to, to China. So if the Chinese market is not demanding as much as it is, then it means, and Germany follows like Japan, an export led strategy. If the Germans are not able to export those heavy machines, heavy equipment for, to China, to the factories of the world, then definitely a slowdown in China will disproportionately affect um, Germany. Uh-huh. Now, the big five in the African continent, how is it looking there? Yeah, part of the same IMF brief that came out one hour ago was, uh, first they give a global picture, they also talked about the local picture. For Africa, it seems fairly unchanged. In Nigeria, the focus was still at about uh, 3.2. Uh, for sub-Saharan Africa, it's sort of a bit slower. Um, I think they're still expecting um, some of the sectors like ag 
uh, possibly might 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 be a challenge. So when you look at uh, South Africa, still, you know the the energy things keep coming and going. We've talked about it quite a bit um, on this show, but it seems to be getting worse than better. Now, I was a bit surprised by uh, that latest story that uh, you shared with me, but it it does seem that um, South Africa is still navigating. Um, its way out. Egypt is still facing the currency crisis. The currency has really depreciated. So you'd say pretty much Kenya, but also Kenya. We've seen what we are what we are having right now with the mandamanos. Uh, so I would say it's 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 an unsettled time in Africa. It's very difficult to generate a good outlook because there's quite a bit of unsettled activity. That's it. Tanzania has been sort of um, trying to portray itself. As an alternative, as a big kahuna as, as of <laughs> exactly East Africa. Even if you look at some of the moves they're making on the currency market, the reserves are looking good. Even right now, they're starting to put gold bullion in their central banks to hedge against inflation. So I think they're also making some good, sophisticated moves. And uh, investors who might want to diversify might definitely look at uh, looking at um, Tanzania and consider it. Yeah. Out of the big five in Africa, is there any economy? that seems to be on a stable path that maybe is not lightly highlighted or is it just a general sense of let's watch and see how things are going to turn out? Well, you know, we don't talk about Morocco enough. Uh, Morocco is almost the same um, size geographically, uh, population-wise, uh, but we don't get to speak of it much. I think when we talk about North Africa, we focus so much on Egypt because Egypt do- dominates. And but Libya. Yeah, but if you look at North Africa, I mean, its contribution towards phosphorus and fertilizer and agriculture being such a mainstay in these African countries, I think Morocco um, is doing well. I think Kenya can be the beacon of hope. We Singapore. Just, we just need to get our act together domestically. Mm. But if you think of the big structural challenges Nigeria has, which Tinubi is trying to address, um, South Africa, very deep structural issues. Kenya doesn't have those deep structural issues, uh, but we do still have issues. I think Kenya can be that sort of beacon, but uh, my word, do we do have quite a bit of work before we can become that. So right now I would say there is no poster child that you can point and say, oh, wow. Right. You know, it used to be Ghana, but you see where Ghana is, you know, right now, really, really challenged. So I think it's it's a wake-up call to our Kenyan policymakers saying that there is an opportunity, actually, to become a leader in the continent. But we do need to get things to start working and um, and, and, and reduce the, the tension that we're seeing on the streets. Exactly. Commodities. All metal seems to be up, but iron ore. Could there be a story behind that? I would say the big driver, as we've seen, the global um, outlook. I think, obviously, the IMF report on global growth will definitely drive those sentiments up. I'm a bit surprised with gold because, naturally, gold is a hedge against inflation. And when you're seeing inflation sort of starting to ease, um, ease you didn't expect that quite of demand. But you're seeing, as I said, countries like Tanzania are buying some gold um, to hedge. So maybe in the outlook, they're saying, um, maybe inflation will continue to be a problem. So that, for me, was a surprise. But generally, when you see such positive um, out- outcome from like the IMF, naturally you expect not just the metallic, but also the agricultural commodities, unless there is some sector-specific um, dynamic that's driving them. And do you see a focus here where maybe now countries might start thinking around hedging with gold, you know, stocking, uh, backstocking on their gold bullions, 
in their central respective central banks just to be able to lift some of these pressures that come when there is currency depreciation inflation uh shortage of the dollar is it something that you think if you look at what Tanzania is doing now is it something that might be picked up going forward by other countries maybe within the continent or around the world i would say it depends on the success of the monetary policy if those countries have traditionally done a good job um like kenya in maintaining um inflation at 5% you might find the appetite for that might be quite low but to go to some of these west african countries you'll find inflation is at 30% 40%, 50% in North Africa, I think in Egypt, is in, 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 in the double digits. Then in those countries, then having gold uh, makes a lot of sense because it, it really provides a, a hedge. So I think it, it comes back on A, some of these c- countries are very dependent on some import commodities such as wheat. And so if wheat prices go up globally, the inflation numbers are all skewed up. So I think it Every country has to make that judgment. I think the reason, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, maybe Kenya did not um, prioritize that move is because naturally we've done a good job in keeping um, inflation at uh, single digits. The Black Sea Grain Initiative that Russia backed out of seems to be eliciting a lot of demand for wheat and the prices, of course, going up. Is there any where this can be counter or you know uh, 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 a reprieve or maybe an increase in the production of wheat grain from ukraine then it's able to really kind of feed into the market because i think there seems to be a bit of an embargo being imposed self-imposition of uh, of of exporting of commodities by various countries you know the russian argument towards that is um so many because of western sanctions Russia has not been able to benefit from the grain market. And part of that is to dislocate that narrative and where they're saying even Ukraine, you know, they should be able to face the same 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 as them. So I think for them, and this is an important week for them because they have the Russia-Africa summit, another thing they said is the grain that was being brokered wasn't finding itself in the markets, in African markets. That's another claim that had come out. So it's it's some controversial um, outlooks on there. But I think generally speaking, when, you know, in these countries are, are importing 95% of their wheat from these countries, obviously any shock, any deal agreement will naturally mean that the local prices uh, will go up. A good place like Egypt, I think Egypt is probably the largest consumer of um, um, Russian grain on the continent. And that's possibly one, one of the reasons the inflation is, um, in the thirty percent, um, so yes, uh, I think it 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 has an impact on uh, the African economies, and not just from that. If you look at also rice from India, India has also placed an export uh, ban on rice because of the climatic issues and it being unable to feed itself. So you can think of yourself if you're a small African country, you get your rice, your non basmati rice from India, you get your grain from. Um, Russia, Ukraine, then now, and these are what we call basic commodities, then you're unable to get them or or you're able to get them at a very high price. Obviously, that can cause a lot of um, political instability with riots and streets. Um, So, I mean, it, 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 it has that negative effect and one wonders when Africa can really take control of its food um, supply chains. Yes, trade is good, Trade has its benefits, but you know when countries can actually choose when to export, 
can choose when um, green embargoes will be lifted. It means you're really at the mercy of global forces, and I don't think any sovereign country would ever want to be in that situation. So I think it's it's still a big call on our theme that we've discussed here many times on really, really boosting um, ag in these sectors. Crude seems to have an interesting story. Yeah, I mean, the tightening there, really. I think the the, the movement there has been driven more by the tightening by the, the suppliers, the Saudi Arabia's, the Russia's. OPEC. Uh, OPEC. Ah. I think, yeah, I think they did that to provide some stability. Obviously, uh, global demand is also helping when you see people thinking positively about global growth. So I think that that those two forces have provided some stability. And that's why you said the energy stocks um, in the States are doing extremely, extremely well. The, the, what you call the big three, the Chevrons, the Halliburton's, they're doing very, very well. So it's 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 a good time uh, for to be in the energy sector, but uh, uh, these sentiments change very, very quickly. China, very quiet. Not much has come out in the last three weeks since the last numbers. Is there any sign of improvement within China around how manufacturing and export and trade is happening? Well, I think it's been more on what economists call forward guidance when really the Chinese officials have promised the world that they will prop up uh, the economy. And sometimes those words um, can't lift markets. Uh, but, you know, when you start thinking about yourself, what's the problem with China? The property market is that's a, it's, it's a deep, deep problem. To the extent that words can um, sort of like um, evaporate. <laughs> evaporate unless they have a way of really maybe reducing maybe mortgage rates so that almost everybody can afford or giving mortgage credits. I don't know how they'll I'll do it because it's a very deep uh, real estate slam that is really holding down um, the, the, the sector. But they have promised, and based on that promise is part of, part of reason also some of their um, energy, the energy prices are going up because people see China, okay, IMF has promised, they'll, the well has predicted they'll got 5.2%. Who knows? Maybe they can do a 6 Maybe they can do a 5.5%. And that sentiment, and in economics, sentiments also are, are as important as numbers. When officials come and reassure that we are doing everything in our power to lift the Chinese economy, that sometimes can move markets. And the promise of a deliver. That should be <laughs> <laughs> that should be the theme. That should be the ongoing theme until maybe the end of 2023. Yeah, so the big one today on financial focus is carbon markets. And can companies are driven by money and profits. So when one government or when you put a price on carbon emissions, that should encourage businesses to stop polluting. And that's what carbon markets are designed to do. What are carbon markets? That's a fascinating question, Daniel. I think carbon markets are a trading system where people can buy and sell um, carbon credits. So you, if you are an emitter and you want to have more rights to emit, you can buy rights from somebody who um, does not um, produce as much carbon as you do. So the whole idea is uh, you have people buying and people selling, and there's a limited number of permits that the government allocates. And this goes back, probably started in the United States, you know, when really they, no they noticed at the, towards the tail end of the Industrial Revolution that the sulfur dioxide really was uh, creating acid rain, and they came up with a system what they call the cap and trade, where they could decide total number of carbon to be produced, 
then you create permits. And based on those permits, uh, the people who need to buy will buy, the people who need to sell, then you'll create an equilibrium. And that sort of model, you know, into Kyoto really uh, became sort of like a, a model for now carbon um, in general. So it's it's very still very new, especially in countries, in developing countries. I know Kenya has sort of been on the headlines for quite a bit, but still in developing countries, it's still a very new conversation because a lot of these developing countries never went through the industrial revolution. So issues of how do you form carbon markets still very fresh. And, and that's the reason why we're discussing this today, because I think from very heavy push from the IMF, Kenya has now decided and is actually preparing a carbon credit bill that should be tabled in parliament and then through the stages finally get assent. But have carbon markets achieved the aim of reducing pollution from huge corporates? Uh, I'd say Where it's already being practiced and it's working really well. Unfortunately not, because the cost of infringement has been quite low. We might find if you need um, to be able to um, go beyond what you need, uh, the cost was actually very, very little. In fact, I think there was a research by Joseph Stiglitz and another economist that said until the equilibrium price gets to about 50 to $100 per ton, that's the point where the market really works. So I think the infrastructure is there, but the prices are too low right now. Although they have been rising, and I was seeing a statistic it's going up to $80, but still in most countries, they're quite low. So the incentive really has not been there. So I think it two things can happen. Uh, governments can reduce the um, quota for um, carbon emissions, which means you have fewer permits, and those permits become... I guess, more expensive. That's one avenue. But even that has political consequences. It means fewer industries and fewer jobs and unemployment. So those are the considerations. That's part of the reason maybe it's not played out the way the theory would want you to believe. So then which leads me to the to this. Is, is, is Kenya truly introducing a carbon market tax as a tax avenue just to collect money or is it introducing a carbon market into its economy to act on climate action change? What, because I think Africa is one of the lowest emitters of, 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 of pollution, but then we suffer the highest consequences. Now, having not achieved that level of industrial growth to this year what's the motivation behind introducing a carbon market into um, the system there could be multiple um answers to that number one our economies are still very agriculture based and what you've noticed over the last few years is the agriculture sector has been fairly disrupted by the weather patterns so that um when the when the rainfall is consistent you have good um, um, produce when it's not. So these are dependent on agriculture and as you said um, Africa is and Kenya being part of Africa is the least contributor towards climatic change. So I think there's that realization that if our ag sector needs to still keep us propping up then our climate we need to get a grip 
and participate in things and that help uh, the climate become a bit more stable. But I think also deeper than that, I think there's also a realization, which is a pretty shrewd realization that there is money to be made in that sector. Because if you think of, if you ever were in a global carbon market, for example, um, how much would the big um, industrial countries want to pay? Like Brazil already is, from its Amazon carbon sake, it's making a lot of money. So I think there's still that element of this revenue whether you look at it from a global market, but even from a local market perspective, there is money to be made. But I think f- for some people, it's really about, you know, our climate is, it's, 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 we are so, our agriculture sector is so dependent on the climate that if we don't get a grip on it, then we might lose the biggest part of our economy. So I think those motivations are intertwined and interweaved, and depending on where you sit, because there are people who just look at and see a profit motive, uh, but there are people who actually see it from sort of like a, a real uh, sustainability perspective. And I think those views tend to be really intertwined. And what are your thoughts on climate action and the economy? Is it a hoax? <laughs> Is it... There are many schools of thought around, right. you know, climate action, whether it's a hoax, and the countries that actually push for the climate action agenda are some of the largest polluters. If we're going to take a plane from here to Davos to go and discuss climate action, are we really doing it the right way? There is a contradiction. Um, indeed, when you go to Davos on an uh, individual jet <laughs> that is contributing to the same um, carbon emission that you're going there to speak Discuss. against. Yeah, there is, there, is, there is that. I think personally for me, I think um, I would say I'm, I'm on the mild middle end where I do believe we as human beings need to be custodians of our environment. We need to be thoughtful about how to um, curate, how to really take care of our environment. But also, we also have to realize that each country is in a different developmental space. As you've said, the Germanys, the Chinas, the US, they have completed the whole industrial revolution. They have created high-quality jobs. We in Africa, we barely have any manufacturing. We are just about to start our own industrial revolution. So I think the conversations, in my opinion, should be nuanced to the perspective of the country because if you are meeting a a third-world developing country with high unemployment rates and they have found some fossil fuels that could create jobs, that conversation needs to be very different from a country in, in the East, in, the, in China, in Europe, where unemployment rate is 1%, where almost everybody has. So I th- for me, I think maybe the lack of nuances is possibly what I find a bit more problematic, where almost everybody has to uh, be at the same par when at the developmental stage, we are miles and worlds apart. Maybe that is what complicates the conversation a bit. But I'll put to you that the US, uh, the UK, most of these European nations, Germany, went through the whole industrial revolution without necessarily having such a great impact on their own environment and were able to get to that level. So does that then put us in a compromising situation where we have to choose between growth for our people and or the environment? I think it's a false choice that is often put, particularly to voters. And in the U.S., it's a very uh, politically charged topic. 
Um, I mean, you saw it in the presidential elections where you have these states that have coal miners who've done it for five, six, seven generations being asked to leave those jobs and to look for clean jobs. And to your point, maybe they have not, in their opinion, seen um, a change so dramatic as to warrant. Maybe they're given data, but they've have, they have not seen it. Then you have, uh, and that typically tends to be on the Republican side and on the Democrat side, um, you find people talk about, you know, we need to talk about cleaner energy. So I think it's it's even in the advanced countries, it's not a settled debate. I think that's one thing that the listener should know. This, this is not about uh, the global north versus the global south. Even in the global north, in the U.S., it's a very extremely, it's a very hot political topic and it can win or lose a presidency. And you remember Donald Trump was very big in that camp of, you know, that... <laughs> What you've said, you know, that, <laughs> but you have the, the the Democrats. So I think it's 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 for me. I've always believed in individual countries navigating that path. I think it's we still have to be mindful that we have economies to grow, livelihoods to sustain, but also we still have, we also need to be cognizant that if we want um, to think of ourselves in the next five six generations, we have to also um, take care. You know, you go to some of the rivers here in Nairobi, Dani, in the industrial area. These are rivers maybe two decades ago, three decades used to be very clean. Now you go there, you can't even you can't even see uh, what purity of, of water is. And it's very unfortunate. And I think any effort to try and clean some of these rivers. So I think for me, I hope Kenya does not get caught up into some complex policies on this. I hope we can just approach it from a commonsensical. Can we do enough to clean our rivers? Can we maintain some forest cover? I don't. Th- for me, I think that would is what would work with the Kenya we know today. Uh, sort of that sensible approach. I think if we start getting caught up with um, some very very complex pacts, which we don't understand the long term impact, I get worried on what um, that it could actually mean. Maybe at some point you're going to get a loan um, from a bank and you want to start your own business and the bank has to see your business your proposals. <laughs> exactly. And maybe just starting a restaurant, you know. So it's it's so for me, we have to be also cognizant that we are in a developing country where the country badly needs economic jobs. So I think that conversion has to be find a balance and every country has to find its own balance. And and so then now even as Kenya prepares this bill and and this tribunal around the the carbon carbon markets and the carbon credits how are they governed does it mean then that i can buy carbon permits even if i'm not an emitter because from the explanation you gave it's that the carbon permits are bought by manufacturers big corporates big companies that actually to some extent use fossil fuels to generate their income and to build their businesses and I hold the carbon permits that I have bought until maybe you, Ken Gishinga's corporation, exhausts their carbon permits and I sell them to you? Or is it a corporate-to-corporate business where individuals can't hold the carbon permits, but then it's only corporates that can hold the carbon permits and sell to other corporates? Well, I what's believe- the governance or what's the, what's the situation around that environment? 
Well, I, be, I believe the legislation is still being put together. Um, it's not yet been set, but there are two philosophies governing this. What we've just discussed is the cap and trade, where the government comes in and caps and says, um, we could trade this. That seems to be the newer form. But there are those people who don't operate, assuming you're in a space where there is no that uh, framework. There are people who actually calculate, for example, if Danny had a forest, how much carbon is being sequestered. Actually, that's the word they use. You know, So there are people who actually calculate the carbon sequestering. Sequestering. <laughs> carbon farming. <laughs> right. Yes. And you could actually, if... So that mathematics, I, I know somebody who actually does that. And they actually, you give them the, the, the permutations and they'll tell you how much carbon is being sequestered. And, you know, with, with that, you could actually now have an asset and you could say, this is an asset I could, I, 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 I could part with. But I think what Kenya is, possibly what the IMF might be pushing for would be towards the more traditional sort of cap and trade uh, mechanism that we are finding um, in the West. But I, I, I've not seen the legislation, but I would imagine that is what they would naturally with that from the Western perspective in what has worked in Europe and in the U.S., possibly that could be the direction uh, Kenya could be looking at. Now, having looked at that, we are in a situation, and let's just say within the continent, where very few of our airlines, which provide enormous opportunities for jobs, for young people, are also not doing that well. So with the introduction of carbon markets and carbon credits, what does this mean for the aviation industry? Remember, Danny, you had asked me that about three, four episodes ago, the outlook on aviation, and I told you there'll be two driving factors. Number one is there has been a pent-up demand from COVID, and that pent-up demand is playing out now and will drive um, aviation. And remember, I also told you that there will be the issue of climate, uh, climate concerns on especially long-haul flights and such. And I told you those two forces will continue to really dominate the outlook of the aviation industry. I would still think this is still a long haul. It's still a long game for Kenya. Uh, obviously, as you said, our airlines still are struggling. The economy still seems to be at the heart of our discourse. Even, even the mandamanas outside, it's about the economy. So I expect legislation and policies to give a higher priority on the economy but there will be those guidelines on how to how to succeed but without sort of being um injurious to the to 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 the, and i think in most developing countries that's the structure where really people understand that people badly need economic growth almost at any cost in a way uh, but it has to be done in a responsible way that really does not compromise so I, I, I believe even in the aviation sector, if I was a CEO of an, of an airline company, I would still, I don't think this would be something that would fundamentally change uh, my outlook. I think it would still be on, you know, what's the output that we can push to raise revenue. But I suspect as we start getting into five, ten years, these con concerns will continue to crystallize even more and they, they'll actually not become plans of, yeah, yeah. And, and and does this go to actually influence the pricing of air travel? 
it does. It does. So that means maybe if for such an economy or within the continent, lower demand on air travel, so maybe the less demand for jets for that airline and therefore less staff. It does in that in that sense it can make the pricing more expensive, particularly in an area or in Africa where prices are already very expensive. So it can add to the cost and reduces the demand. And the reason I say it's, it can be contradiction because we're talking about the Africa continental free trade, the time for Africa to start doing business, the time for us to sell Kenyan coffee in Ivory Coast, um, for Ivory Coast to sell their chocolate to Tanzania. All that can't be done just by road. It has to be done by air. Yeah, and that's why I keep saying as we push African trade, as we push um, the African continental free trade, we also have to be aware that much of it will be driven uh, by air freight, which will have impacts. And you'll find some of the forces pushing the African continental free trade also the same forces pushing the climate action. Uh, action. So sometimes it can seem a bit contradictory, but naturally speaking, I would imagine the economic concerns of our times are front and center of policy making, not just in Kenya, but in many African countries. And I expect that will still continue um, into the near future. It's at this point a throw in tourism. If airlines feel the pinch of having to ferry passengers from Europe to Nairobi and be met with another carbon tax, does that give them the desire, the need really to continue operating that route and paying that carbon tax just to bring people in and out? Or how then does that affect the trade, the, the tourism industry, which brings us a lot of revenue uh, without without the foregoing. I think it's important we also define to our listeners what that carbon tax is and how it's derived. So if you look at, for example, in the European and um, the EU space, um, there was the issue that the markets cover the European economy. And there was an issue that companies might want to start conducting part of their business outside of the EU where their regulations are a bit lax and enjoy that laxity. So to be able to contain that, what they call carbon leakage, they came up with the issues of a carbon tax so that the prices are always um, at par, whether you are conducting your business within the EU outside of the EU. Outside the EU. So if you are in Kenya, for example, and yes, now you're flying into Paris, if you're flying into into London, that could apply. Now the question is, will it be significant to deter your passengers from flying with you? Will it make you less competitive? I think now that depends on the airline strategy. Some of the airlines here, you find the demand is very almost inelastic. So even though you raise those prices, you still find um, they have customers. So I think that question will only vary on the unique, the new, the unique aviation strategy of that particular flight. But definitely in routes that are very competitive, 
why even ten dollars means the difference between hundreds of people flying with you or not definitely those routes will be affected but you'll find most airlines tend to prefer routes where they almost have a dominance or where they have sort of like price inelasticity where they can really increase prices without much latitude and as long as airlines have those strategies then they might not significantly um sort of tweak their their models so airbus has to start thinking of air solar airplanes <laughs> <laughs> It's a new innovation. <laughs> it's it's a new innovation coming from now what is being developed across the world and not just in Kenya uh in the name of carbon markets. Now, Kenya has a forest cover of 6%. Mm-hmm. Significantly low. You've brought the issue of Brazil where there's the whole Amazon region which is considered as an Amazon sink. Mm-hmm. Do you need to have Amazon uh, it's not Amazon sinks. Do you need to have carbon sinks so that then you can get into the carbon markets and sell carbon credits? Naturally, countries like Brazil that have the endowment would definitely have an upper hand um because of the ability to sequester more carbon. So they can participate more. You know, but somebody would ask what about uh, Dubai? What, what about these deserts? Correct. You know, can they not play any role no i i i believe there are many ways of our carbon sequestration uh, there are many ways um obviously what we are familiar with are the forest sinks which kenya still has as you say 6% and it's gone down very low to about um 10% uh there is that obviously uh um, different countries will have different capabilities of participating in the markets and that's why i think the question is should these markets be global or should they be national so well, that's a big debate do we have a global where you can sell to boeing in seattle mm-hmm. or should it be something where you deal with the foxy in industrial area the at the river at the river and you have a farm naivasha. in naivasha you know mm. those are still and danny bedo i'll tell you there are entire conferences that are held just to unpack one of these items that we've talked about so many items on climate but just one of these items today you'll find almost like a whole week conference summit seminar to unpack so that should tell you that so much is still evolving so much is still flowing there's still also a lot of complexities of measurements you know direct emissions versus indirect emissions i mean there's still so much so nobody should give you the impression that this is a settled a science no 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 far from it this is something that almost every week they are their conferences on the estimated collection from by the Kenya government in terms of revenue from carbon markets they're looking at collecting 5.8 million in one year 31.1 million in the second year and 65.1 million in the third year which means by the time we are doing 10 years the amount of revenue they'll be collecting will be very significant as a tax how does then this play into the economy is this money collected to generate carbon sinks or is it money collected to do infrastructural development well, what's the end game of introducing a carbon tax or is it collected to pay debt well i think the numbers you've raised are actually very very small in the grand scheme of things say that again it took you of we are talking about the first year at 
5.8 million dollars that's 5.8 million dollars okay so i so for me i think as i said there are two perspectives to this yes um kenya is becoming compliant there's a move towards compliance with the international financial hierarchy of um of 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 how financing will be and kenya wants to be or uh, the policy makers at least want kenya to be part part, part of that uh, so you, to your point um there is revenue for the government to collect i don't think you can say that will pay off our national debt i mean you're talking of 9 trillion 9 trillion you know that, that won't be a national debt but it can raise revenue but i think you know this is this is what you'd call um in economics called pigovian taxes pigovian taxes are taxes that are meant to discourage a certain behavior um what you call sin taxes in a way and we see it everywhere whether it's in gambling um or betting um so the intention the primary intention should be to discourage pollution but as i said i think the time we had this particular conversation i said sometimes the primary intention of discouraging is often overshadowed by the desire for revenue collection which you see now in betting and in alcohol where it's not about having fewer people consume alcohol or fewer people consume sugar but having you actually have revenue targets of what you want to collect so i think it's back to the policy makers to really remember that pigovian taxes and this could be a pigovian taxes to disincentivize excessive climate uh, destruction that should be the primary objective whether you get some revenue yes you should plug that revenue back to your planting trees how many billion of trees are you trying to plant 15 billion 15 billion so maybe you could you could sort of offset it that way that's one logical way of looking about it but as i said it's not settled because you go to some of these areas here where they are you go to our entire counties where there is no factory and you know you are the governor you've been invited to come and launch a factory you know it will be very difficult to tell that factory to ease on its emission and it's the only factory in that whole area and it's the only factory that hires people so those are the realities that we have to navigate through that climate science is not operating in vacuum it's operating in a certain economy a certain anthropology a certain history which is very different from maybe what you know countries like japan are are, are in so that no once again i think is sometimes what goes sometimes um um unsaid many times and i have a theory to that what you just said ken no good deed goes unpunished if you look at our neighbors just across the border tanzania their forest cover is almost going to 30% if not yet what if the bill that is being proposed by parliament around carbon markets is to incentivize the corporates and hear me out get corporates to do carbon farming so it could be competition whatever you want to call it which corporate puts in the biggest and the fastest carbon sinks you get more tax rebates and then you actually for you to be able to get more tax rebates you show the intention and in numbers how many more people from the tax rebates you get you are adding into the company when the money comes back from the rebates of from KRA you apply it back into the economy and then just continue this cyclic um 
design where you're just creating jobs and creating jobs and creating jobs through not carbon markets of taxing but carbon markets of you know creating carbon carbon sinks i think that's a very innovative and i think that's the western approach um to it um and i think it, it's a much more sophisticated thing than what we see today where companies are foundations and they give one percent of their profit to the foundations and the foundations go and they do planting trees i think what you've said has that sustainability the question is will the revenue authority give you a tax break at a time they badly need they're over collecting that because the corporate tax rate is what 30 percent yes so i'm guessing maybe you'd say we'll give you a tax break to down to 25 percent yes and that extra five you plow it back 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 you know and employ more people into the into 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 this space now that you've achieved your your whatever the benchmark would be for right. carbon farming you get the tax rebate and of of, of the five percent you apply it back into the industry and then employ more people so that you have more people now having uh generating income that then they can plow back into the economy and that becomes a system where now every corporate is looking forward to as opposed to saying we're going to introduce a carbon market where we'll be taxing you know you know danny in the previous administration um, back in i think in the 2014 2015 there is something very similar uh they came up with not on climate but i remember it was on supporting local tourism and the idea there was if corporates if every employee uh, got an annual vacation to go to mombasa to naivasha wherever you know the government could reduce um the corporate tax rate they could get tax breaks and that amount of money could facilitate and i thought it was a brilliant way because when you get to support domestic tourism, tourism. this is at the time that um uh, you had the tourism attack the terrorism attacks that the hotels were pretty pretty um undersubscribed at that time and i thought that was brilliant but for the life of me it never actually took off <laughs> you know so and, and i think i think as an economist we need to not just point out when a policy maybe is 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 not good but when it's good but it's not implemented because that's exactly what you're saying where you give tax breaks as an incentive to be able to spur development for them it was tourism but for you it's climate it could be on any initiative it could be on innovation it could be on anything but for some reason you know it just didn't follow through i, d- I don't know why but I've, it you know on paper it does sound maybe somebody could say okay but government has so many needs it can't afford to you know release that money it, it already planned for that money to do a b c d it can't start giving rebates there are those arguments that people but, but you know that's how it works in the west in fact the first principle of economics is really people and companies respond to incentives so if you have a tax break but you ask yourself also what's the percentage of the p- economy that's being taxed it's also very small and that's and that's and that's my point about mm. this because mm. if you look at the corporates that are supposed to be into these carbon markets are very few so if you give a rebate towards carbon sinks you have more people coming into the job market that means you're collecting more tax mm. then it makes it easier to offset whatever debt you have with the euro bond or whatever else or with IMF and it's uh, it's revenue that keeps being generated so fewer companies are going to 
really find the need to break the psychological barrier of a cap and trade in terms of carbon markets. Mm-hmm. But more and more companies are going to find the need to put in their money, their resources, and their energy in a carbon sink to get a tax rebate and then even by chance then get to employ more people. I completely agree with you, Daniel. It's it's a great way of it's much better than what we have today where money is put to foundations and foundations are what go into those conservation initiatives and you get a photo op moment. You're goodbye. What, and a goodbye, yeah. <laughs> what you've just said is far more sustainable. Uh but as they said, there was a case study where a similar model had been proposed but we've never really understood why it didn't, it didn't, it didn't take off. Just the objective there was really on to on supporting tourism and not climbing. But it for me, I have always thought that's an excellent, excellent proposal. Now, given the ongoing events triggered by weather changes, global warming, pollution, what would you say as an economist are the best best strategies to to kind of just you know give the economy some kind of cover? I would say we are, and we've chosen to be part of a global economy where um, we are impacted by forces um, domestically uh, and internationally. And we can't run away from that. So if India is facing somewhat of a drought and they can't export their rice to Kenya, Obviously, that becomes part of um, the discontentments that globalization brings. That said, I think global cooperation amongst countries, and I think data needs to be at the heart of it, because much of what we've discussed today, you know, it's hard to put a number. When you talk about how much direct emission and indirect emission, you know, how do we really, do we have the tools that are measuring that. And I think for me, without that data, policy making becomes very subjective, very complicated. So I think for me as an economist, and economists believe in numbers, can we start getting numbers, number one on what you're saying on carbon sequestering, how do we calculate how much carbon is sequestered here in Kenya? What's the science? Is everybody does have everybody have access to that calculation? As a company, as a CEO of a manufacturing company, how do I accurately measure the emissions that my company is producing? I think if we had those support services, then the conversion now becomes far more. Because now you can be able to do cost-benefit analysis. You can say, okay, if I can reduce my emission by 2%, maybe I can benefit from this government program. But today we still don't have that science, the mathematics. Is still not then i'd say as an economist let's build data and let the data let the data be able to help us and navigate a path towards not just prosperity but sustainability and inform how we do our policies correct thank you very much ken it's an inexhaustible topic but you've made time for us and we're very grateful Financial Focus continues next Tuesday. You can WhatsApp us on 0701-984-984. You can tweet us at Capital FM Kenya, hashtag Financial Focus. Catch up with this latest episode as well as other previous episodes of the Financial Focus on Capital FM SoundCloud page or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. Thank you, Ken. Thank you.